I'll ask the rest of you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. As we continue our study through the Beatitudes and the, the, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, endeavor to undertake this most famous of sermons of our Lord Jesus Christ and to seek to understand and to know what it is He wants us to know from it. Speaking of the blessings of God, he speaks to us in a, in a manner, and as he spoke to his audience, in a manner that was really unexpected, in a manner that grabbed their attention, because he speaks to them the blessings of God in ways they had not heard of previously. People tend to think of God's blessing on being that which uh, is found in, in abundance, and that which is found in having a lot of things, having wealth, having health, and and people tend to think of, of those things for God's blessings. Not to say that they're not God's blessings, but those are not primarily God's blessings. God's blessings are found in the strangest places that we've seen already. And as Jesus speaks to us in the Beatitudes and, and teaches us of this uh, the reality of God's favor, which is what the word blessing actually refers to, it is God's favor on us. Not just God's good things towards us, but God's favor on us as reflected in these things. And of course, Jesus starts off with these things that are unexpected in such a way that we might be able to understand, or rather that our attention might be drawn to, that we might understand that being in the kingdom of God is, may not be what we may not be what we expect. God's blessings may not be what we've always thought they were, but they may be something different entirely. And Jesus begins to speak to us about what it means to be a part of his kingdom. What it means to have the character of a Christian who, or the character of a person who follows after God. We would say the character of a Christian, true Christian character. And, and so these are the things that, that Jesus is speaking about. And he was speaking, of course, contrary to popular opinion, as, as I've already said. It's something that even as we look at this, it's meant to challenge us. Um, it's a challenge to us, not just in contrast to popular opinion, but also even among the churches. As Jesus speaks against expectation, against tradition, against commonly held convictions, in order to provide a better understanding of who God truly is and how he works in the lives of those who are pursuing him. See, Jesus didn't speak in reference to some personal philosophy, but Jesus spoke with all the authority of heaven. Jesus didn't speak in just a way that, that was different. I mean, you can go anywhere and hear people talk about something different than what you're used to, right? I mean, people have all kinds of crazy ideas about stuff. It doesn't mean they're right. But when Jesus spoke, he wasn't just speaking from a, from, for the sake of being different. He wasn't just speaking from a place of personal philosophy. He wasn't just speaking as somebody who had different ideas. But he was speaking as God in the flesh. He was speaking truth. He was speaking with authority. He was speaking with power in order that we might know who he was, but also that we might know what it means to be in a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. And as Jesus begins this sermon with these, what are called the Beatitudes, these first 
nine phrases here to speak of God's blessing. He does so in such a way as that we might be changed by what we hear. See, these are not merely suggestions of how we ought to live as a Christian. These are descriptions of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. This is supposed to be a description of the experience of the Christian, the character, the attitude that we possess ought to be reflected in this as we are found in Christ. So it's something that we really need to pay attention to because it is a point of personal examination and it is a point of helping us or to break us rather into a closer relationship with our Heavenly Father as we seek to know and serve Him better. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning as we read from God's holy word. Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read the entirety of this from verse 1 through verse 12 of our focus this morning in verses 6 to 8. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall become Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, I ask that you continually open our hearts to receive your speak to us clearly, that you would give us boldness to respond, so that you, O oh Lord, could be glorified, and that we would be forever changed by your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be seated. As I said, when Jesus began his sermon, he began to speak in a way that was unexpected. Who expects to hear, blessed are the poor in anything, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in this world. They're blessed because God is a compassionate God. Because when we recognize our inability to bring anything to Him, our inability to come before God on our own merits, we're blessed because that's where we begin to recognize our need for Him, where we cry out to from. In fact, the first three Beatitudes we talk about are, are really Beatitudes. Those are, those are uh, blessings that refer to uh, and evaluate a right understanding of the Christian life, of the self. If you go to evaluate yourself, you can recognize that to be someone of faith is to be someone who is born in spirit. To be someone of faith is to be someone who mourns over sin and its impact on the world. To be someone of faith is, is to be gentle and to be, which is, we talk about this as a word that means power and control. It means to be in control of your emotions and to be in control of your reactions to things. It is to become more like Christ. 
That is the self-evaluation of those first three beatitudes for us to recognize who we are before a holy God. That is the purpose of those first three beatitudes. And as we move on to the next three this morning, verses six through eight, these are verses that deal primarily with our motivation in serving God. These are things that have to do with reflecting on our motivation in serving Christ. They are still inward in a sense, but they begin to find a reflection in, in an outward expression. They are uh, now, of course, I want to I want you to understand, you know, I, I'm giving you these divisions, you know, self-evaluation, you know, motivation for service, and uh, the last three are going to have a different unifying thing. Understand this, when Jesus did this, I don't necessarily think he meant for them to be divided up like this, but it just helps for the purpose of our study to kind of focus and look at it. Because every one of these beatitudes is important in and of itself. We need to understand that. And some of the ones that aren't right next to each other are related to each other. I mean, if you think about it, being, uh, being gentle and being merciful and being a peacemaker all have very similar themes, although they're located in different sections of these beatitudes. But we, have, we approach this from a sense of trying to understand a, a unity of the things which Jesus is speaking because he does give them in a very specific order for a very specific reason. And so as we look at this and we're seeking to understand what it is he's trying to get us to understand, and as I have studied this over the last couple of months and been looking into this, these are the divisions that kind of came out of that study and trying to understand that what Jesus, how Jesus is working in in telling us about God's favor and God's blessing over those who are rightly related to it are those things which find manifestation in a self-evaluation, find manifestation in the motivation for our service. So as we look at these, I want you to keep that in mind as, as, as an over, as a unifying theme, rather, of these next three Beatitudes. Because Christ is seeking to help us understand what it means to be like him. Okay? All of these have that in common. One unified thing of all the attitudes. This is what it means to be like Christ. To follow Christ is to become like Christ. To love God is to love his son. To love his son is to be like him. And so as we're seeking to be like him, and we're, and we're looking at our motivation for service, the first thing that he tells us here in verse number six is blessed are those who hunger for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That is, that the Christian, a true Christian, someone who is being conformed to the image of Christ, ought to desire righteousness. That is what hungering and thirsting for righteousness is. It is a desire for those things which are righteous. Have you ever been, like, really, really hungry? Like, you haven't eaten in days, and, and your stomach is just... It just won't be quiet. It's, it's aggravating you. It's talking to you. There's nothing you can do. You just want something to eat. Or you've been so thirsty that you can't even form spit in your mouth. I mean, you just, just need you just need something to drink so desperately. It creates when we're without those things that are necessary for life, it creates a longing in us that those things be provided to us. Well, for somebody who's rightly related to God, there is a longing that exists within us that cannot be satisfied apart from God himself. And so he tells us that there ought to be within us a longing, a desire for the things of God, for righteousness. 
that is the things that are pleasing to God and for God himself, who is the personification of righteousness. Now, we all know that we're not as, even as Christians, we're not as desirous of the things of God as we want to be at, at all times. But when we look at this reality, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, if you don't identify with that at all, you don't have any relationship with God. God creates in us when he changes us different desires. So when you, when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, there ought to be something in your heart that says, yes, I want that. Even if you're falling short of it, there ought to be something in you that says, yes, I want that. I hunger for righteousness. I, I thirst for righteousness. I, I hunger and I thirst for God himself. And if that's not the reality of your heart, if you can't identify with that, you've got a problem in your relationship with God. We need to hunger and thirst for those things which are pleasing to God, but also for God himself. We need to long for what is right in his sight, which is righteousness. All righteousness is that which is right in God's sight. That is righteousness. And of course, it's a longing for that. So it's longing for that which pleases him, but it's a longing for that himself. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we learn that God has made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, God saves us to make us righteous. Now we are, at the moment of our salvation, at the moment we profess genuine, saving faith in Christ, we are declared righteous before God. Our sin is wiped away, we are, our guilt is removed, and we are adopted into God's family, we are declared righteous. But in a very practical sense, we are not righteous. In a spiritual sense, we're declared righteous, but in a practical sense, righteousness needs to be worked into us. God is working into us, he's declared the reality of us, and then he begins to work in such a manner so that what has been worked into us might find an outward expression through us. So righteousness, we are made to be righteous, right? I mean, God made him to be sin for us so that we can become what? The righteousness of God in Christ. So God's conforming us into the image of Christ that we might become righteous in him. This might be pleasing in his sight. That we might do the things which honor and glorify our Lord and Savior. That's the idea here. The hungering and the thirsting for righteousness is that desire to live out what God has declared about us to be true. If God, if Jesus comes along and says, you are righteous, don't you want that to be the reality? I mean, you don't want God to tell you that you are something and then fail to live up to what he's told you you are. So, so we're looking for the manifestation of righteousness to come through us in our being. But it's not just about actions either. As I said before, it is the longing for God himself because God is the manifestation of perfect righteousness. The natural outcome of a right relationship with God, of course, is the longing for that which honors him, but it is, but it is only fully experienced in the pursuit of God himself. And it is only because it is only in God himself that we can truly be satisfied. 
And that's the promise that he's given us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. That word satisfied, it means to be filled to the full, to be gorged. Right? Y'all, anybody get that tiny little bag and just get to the point where you just can't move afterwards? I mean, you're more than satisfied, right? Um, but that's the idea here. I mean, if you're hungering and thirsting for, for God, if you're hungering and thirsting for the things of God, he says, I'm going to give you what you want. Now, he, he gives us a little bit through life. He gives us more and more of himself as we go through life as we're pursuing him. He gives us the, himself through his word. He gives us himself through his church. He gives us of himself through the relationships he brings into our life with other believers. He gives of himself as we grow in faith and understanding. He gives of himself because he wants us to pursue him. He wants us to know him and, and, and to pursue him. In Jeremiah 29, 13, the Lord said, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And then a couple chapters later, in chapter 31, verse 25, it says, For I satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone who languishes. Now that's very similar to what we see Jesus speaking of here in this beatitude. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied. Jeremiah, God told them, for I satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone who languishes. Well, who are those that are languishing? Those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, right? Those who are hungering and thirsting for Him. Because He wants us to find satisfaction in Him. He wants us to have a longing for Him. Unfortunately, I think that's something that's lacking in a lot of Christians' lives. It's lacking in a lot of Christian churches. There's no real longing for God. There's a, there's a longing to have things a certain way. There's a longing to do things a certain way. There's a longing for things that we want. What we need is a longing for God Himself. A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, wrote this. He said, the church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for one so low, one so adult, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping, and this she has done not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge. And her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe consciousness of divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to draw inwardly to meet God in the glory of silence. I think those are aptly speaks of the church that we see today. And what's really interesting is we wrote this over 50 years ago. This isn't a new development. This is something that the church has struggled with throughout the ages that it's so easy to focus on other things and to forget what we're truly doing. We are here to glorify God. We need to recapture our awe of Him. We need to desire Him above all else. It's too easy to become consumed with pursuits and activities that just fill up time and to substitute things that seek to please people when we need to be asking ourselves what pleases the Lord. Right. If we substitute the glory of man 
for the glory of God. We will only give what we can supply ourselves. But if we pursue the righteousness of God, He will satisfy that pursuit by giving us more and more of Himself. That's motivation to pursue the righteousness of God. To pursue it personally, to pursue it relationally as we grow in our walk. Christian life must be marked by a desire for righteousness, but also by a display of mercy. By a display of mercy. Verse number seven Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This word, merciful, is only used, this particular word is only used in the New Testament at this point in relationship. Everywhere else it's used, always used in relationship to God. God being merciful to God. That's very interesting because it speaks to us something of the reality of what Jesus was saying is that God's character ought to be reflected in us. The particular character he's talking about is God's mercy. That is God's compassion. His, and, and it manifests really in two ways. First of all, you have the, the mercy of God, which doesn't give us what we deserve, right? The mercy of God looks at our iniquity, the mercy of God looks at our sinfulness, the mercy of God looks at who we are in light of God's holy perfection, and sees all of our failures, and recognizes that what we deserve is punishment. What we deserve is condemnation. But God's mercy says, I'm going to give you the offer of life. I'm going to give you an opportunity for forgiveness. I'm going to give you an invitation to come into my life. That's mercy. That's God's mercy. Not giving us what we deserve. Now, there's not a whole lot of opportunities. Well, maybe there is, because a lot of times people wrong us and we want to react to their wrongs against us. People don't do something, they offend us, they want to respond, they want to go out and uh, do something. And the reality is, is God has told us that we ought to be what? Merciful, right? We don't we ought not to give them what they deserve. But we ought to be as God is, as God has been merciful towards us, we also ought to be merciful towards them. And in Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable of a slave who owed his master an immense amount of money, an unbelievable debt that he could not repay. And, and the, so the slave goes to the master, and, the, and he begs for mercy, right? And the master ultimately forgives him. He says, listen, I'm going to forgive the debt. I'm going to forgive it, go in peace. And then the slave goes out and finds a fellow slave. This fellow slave owes him only a very small fraction of what he owed to his master, and he was not merciful to him. But he told him he was going to have him thrown in prison, and, and he was very harsh with him and very, very ugly towards him. And then the master found out, and he confronted the slave, and you see it up there in Matthew 3. The master says, Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy? Followers of Christ, we have been shown immense mercy by a holy and just God. 
consideration of that person be on also to be merciful, offering forgiveness, demonstrating kindness to the most undeserving of offenders. This isn't showing kindness to people who are kind. This isn't showing goodness to people who are good. This isn't doing right to people that you like. This is doing good to those people. First of all, to those people who have offended you. It's doing good to them. But it's also doing good to people who you recognize are in a very difficult place. Extending mercy is giving them Judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Within 
goes on to say, mercy triumphs over judgment. And I'm glad that that second phrase is in the cut. So, while we're not merciful, we may not receive mercy, but when God works in us and creates in us a merciful heart, we are given, we are given mercy from Him, and that mercy ought to be displayed through us. See, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we're still offending him, while we're still rejecting him, while we're still apart from him, that he sent Jesus to die for us. That he sent Christ to stand in our place, to take our punishment. Not just so that we can be declared innocent. If that, I mean, if that wouldn't be good enough. I mean, Christ died so that we could be innocent in the form of heaven. But he did more than that. He more than just forgave our sin. Made us part of his family. He didn't only say, hey, listen, I'm taking all your sin away. You're no longer guilty. Now go your way and do your thing. No, he said, I'm taking all your sin away. I'm asking you to be a part of my Come and follow me. Come and honor me. Come and serve me. Come and partake of the goodness of who I am. Partake of my righteousness. Experience my presence. So that goes, it goes beyond an equivalent. It is the magnificence of his mercy towards us. And as he has called us, as he's been merciful to us, he has also called us to be merciful to others. And of course, demonstrations of mercy are not meant to be limited to withholding of retribution by acts of compassion, as I just mentioned earlier. First John 3 17 says, Whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? If we refuse to show mercy, then we're just showing that our heart is not the same as what God's heart is. If we show compassion and we're merciful to those who have wronged us and those who are in need, we are promised future expressions of mercy as well. What does he say? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Does that mean the mercy that we express towards others how we receive God's mercy in the court of heaven? No. Obviously not. We can't earn God's forgiveness. We can't earn justification. We can't earn our salvation. That is a gift of grace. So when he says, for those who are merciful will receive mercy, he's not talking about, about salvation in, in its essence, although there may be, just listen, there may be a hint of that future reality in which we do stand before a holy God and the fullness of his mercy is revealed to us and as, his, as our sins are brought up before him and Jesus is saying, pay in full. I mean, we're going to see the manifestation of mercy in eternity future, amen? I mean, so there may be a, there may be a hint of that going on here, but I think it's more than that. I think that when he says, blessed are merciful, they shall receive mercy, he's telling us that his mercy follows us throughout this life, that he continues to give us mercy to the circumstances of our life as he, as he pours into us and as he works through us. In Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 19, 17, it says this. It says, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. That is God demonstrating mercy to the merciful. That is God demonstrating his goodness to those who act in his name. The Lord's mercy abounds to us and ought to abound from us, from us as his children. So we are called as his children, first of all, to desire righteousness. We ought to be motivated with the desire for righteousness, but we also ought to be motivated with the, with the desire to display mercy. 
to be merciful as he has been merciful to us, as a testimony of his goodness and grace. So we desire righteousness, we display mercy, but we also must demonstrate pure motives. Look at verse number eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see. I remember back when I was in college, 
when I, when I received Christ today. I can remember praying to receive Christ and then just kind of just sitting there in the quiet and just, just waiting for something. It's like, okay, God, now what? You know, I, was just, I was waiting for something spectacular, something just that was going to move the whole heaven and earth. And, and I waited. There wasn't anything super spectacular. There wasn't anything just earth shattering that happened. But it was in the days and the, and the months that followed that I began, as I trusted that what God said was real and that I had believed in him and I, I trusted him. And I began to recognize he had changed me. There was things happening in my life that I was coming under conviction over, and there would be things that happened, and I'm like, and I just would automatically know that's, that that doesn't please the Lord. I would not do that. And I had this growing desire in my heart to, to, to understand what His Word was. And I had this growing concern in my heart for the people around me that didn't know what it meant to be saved. And, and I had a, a growing desire to, to, to grow in my knowledge and understanding of who He was and what He did. Now, I'm not saying I didn't struggle. There's a, a completely imperfect person. But God had given me a new heart. He had given me new desires. He had given me new perspective. He had given me a new motivation. That's what it means to be pure heart. To be motivated by the things that please God. And what does he tell us is the blessing for pure motives? We are blessed. We have God's favor. Well, what is it? Blessed are the pure heart, they shall see God. Now, if you've been born again, that makes it and we look forward to it. We want to see God. We want to see our Savior face to face. We want to embrace Him. And we want we want to know Him in that capacity. But for someone who hasn't been born again, what do they care if they see God? There's no desire there to see God. Not a whole lot of desire for God to see them. Matthew Henry writes, What pleasure could an unsanctified soul take in vision from the vision of the Holy God? As he cannot endure to look upon their iniquity, so they cannot endure to look upon his purity. Nor shall any unclean thing enter into the new Jerusalem, but all that are pure in heart, all that are truly sanctified, have desires wrought in them, which nothing but the sight of God will sanctify, and divine grace will not leave those desires. What an amazing promise that he's given us in this reality. If you have the motivation of a pure heart before God, if your desires are pleasing to him, if you've been born again, if you've been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, you get to see God. That is an amazing truth. Now, having a pure heart doesn't mean that our motivations are always still here, we still struggle, but we recognize the reality of Jesus We recognize that we want to be like Him, and we want to know that we want to see Him. Until that time, your heart will be longing for that day. As we are being conformed from one degree of purity to the 
continue will be expanded through our
overtake the place that pursues for your glory, for righteousness. Lord, strengthen my walk to pursue you and your righteousness above all things. To be merciful.